Hi there, welcome to episode two of Eat Like the Animals. I'm writer Charlotte Wood and I'm speaking with Professors David Robenheimer and Steve Simpson of Sydney University's Charles Perkins Centre about their decades of groundbreaking research into what humans can learn from animals about what and how to eat. In today's conversation, we're going to hear about the five appetites that drive our food preferences, along with an intriguing concept called the protein leverage hypothesis. And we're going to hear about what all this means for our own physical health. Charlotte. Now, in the last episode, we learned that your locusts were really kind of driven by this appetite for protein. Um, and in the book, you point out that they would gladly eat each other if other protein is not freely available. So we know that protein is important for all of us, but why is it so important? What is it about protein in particular? Backtrack a little bit just to emphasise that Animals aren't, or our locusts weren't driven specifically by protein. They had appetites for different nutrients, and in situations where they were able to, they used those appetites to compose a balanced diet, the one that was best for them. But in situations where um, they are unable to select a balanced diet because of the kinds of foods that are available or aren't available, more to the point, protein is the stronger of the appetites it overrides. Now, one reason that protein is such a strong um, appetite is that animals really don't have a means of storing it in the same way as what they have a means of storing um, excess energy eaten in the form of fats and carbohydrates in body fat. What that means is that they have to ensure that they get the right amount of protein on a daily basis. If they go without fats or carbohydrates or little fats and carbohydrates for a day or two that can draw on body fat, to compensate for that, but there isn't really an equivalent for protein. And this is the same in humans, right? That's the same in humans. Mm. And the, there's something special too about protein, which is distinctive. Um, it's not just a, a store of energy or a, a source of energy as are fat and carbs. It also contains nitrogen. And nitrogen is a key element for growth for building new proteins for making dna for just about every critical biological process you need nitrogen now nitrogen is everywhere in the atmosphere it's more than 70 percent of the atmosphere is nitrogen but we animals don't have access to it unless we have some clever associations with bacteria that can fix it out of the um, atmosphere and the same true um, is true of plants so we need nitrogen in our food and the place that nitrogen comes the principal place it comes in food is in the form of protein mm -hmm. so if you don't have enough protein you can't grow you can't reproduce you can't develop and you may have all the calories in the world but if you haven't got enough nitrogen you're in trouble right so well, moving on from there Give us a little, well, most of us kind of know the basic rules of good nutrition, but though it does seem increasingly confusing, I think. Can you just give us, you've told us why protein is important, what it, what it does for us. Can you give us a little primer on the other key nutrients and what they do for us, why we need them? 
Well, we, we have um, two basic classes of nutrients, so-called macronutrients and then the micronutrients. And the macronutrients include protein, fat, and carbohydrate. And the micronutrients um, include a whole range of minerals and vitamins, the things that are essential in tiny, tiny quantities to make our bodies work. The macronutrients are the major source of energy, which is fuel for, for everything that we do to stay alive. And protein has nitrogen as well. So you can make a long list of what are called essential nutrients, and it's more than 40 or 50 long. And those nutrients are all required in our diet. Otherwise, we will die. And um, added to that, there are dozens more nutrients that are important to us, but we can synthesize, make ourselves and our bodies from other nutrients. But if you added that together and made a list, you'd have a list of more than 100 things that have to be as nutrients in our diet to make us, to make us work. Um, fats, carbohydrates and proteins are the principal macronutrients. So given that we need all these things, you would think that we have, or do we have appetites for all of them? Your research has shown that humans, you say, have five principal appetites. Tell us what they are. Most animals share the same five appetites um, for protein, for carbohydrates, for fats, for calcium and for sodium. And when we think about appetites and craving things to eat, I would think that I have appetites for protein, carbs, fat, salt and sugar. So where does sugar fits into carbohydrates? Is that right? Ah, well, that's, that's a good question. Sugar is a carbohydrate. And carbohydrates are perhaps the most misunderstood and most maligned of the, of, of the certainly macronutrients. And carbohydrates are not essential to us either. You can live without eating any carbohydrates, but that's not the same thing as saying you'll be healthy mm. if you eat no carbohydrates. And that is a theme that we develop um, at length in the book. So if you think about it, carbohydrates, the majority of the carbohydrates in the natural world are made from thin air and sunlight. Um, they're the carbohydrate structures that are produced as a result of photosynthesis by plants. It's the major group uh, of, of nutrients that provides the principal source of calories in the human diet and always has done. And it spans everything from simple sugars, glucose and fructose, fruit sugar, uh, so-called monosaccharides. They're the simplest sugars, one unit of sugar molecule, all the way up to um, long chains of sugar molecules that form structures that are virtually indigestible to us. The most abundant carbohydrate on the planet is cellulose, and cellulose is what forms the cell walls of every single plant. Now, plants um, need rigid cell walls, otherwise they would fall over because they have to withstand the, the, the weather and plants don't run around as do animals. So their cells aren't squishy bags like, mm -hmm. like ours. They're, they're rather little rigid boxes and that box 
is cellulose. And cellulose is the material that we can't digest. Uh, we make paper and textiles from. But um, there are starches, which are more readily digested carbohydrates, which aren't quite as tightly stuck together as the, the glucose molecules and cellulose. And then there are more and more digestible sugars until you get all the way down to table sugar, which is um, a disaccharide. That's two molecules, one of glucose and one of fructose stuck together. Um, and then you've got the um, single sugars, the monosaccharides, glucose, fructose, um, and others. And where does calcium come into all this? Because that, I think to a kind of lay audience, that appetite for calcium seems sort of surprising. If I was craving calcium, what, what am I, what am I, why am I craving calcium? Well, if you think of the body's structure, one of the major structures is the skeleton, and the skeleton is built largely from, from calcium, as are your teeth. Calcium plays very important physiological roles, it plays um, indispensable roles in, in the nervous system um, and other physiological roles. So it really is what is sometimes referred to as a macro-micronutrient, right. even though it's a micronutrient. We require it in fairly high levels within our, our bodies. Mm. And sodium, similarly, they're, they're those two, um, as David just mentioned, as ions um, are the currency, the principal currency that um, makes your nerve cells and your heart cells work. Mm. So calcium, sodium, potassium are the, the principal currents, the carriers of currents, electrical currents that, that actually make your nerve cells crackle. Well, David's story about the, the panda, I think, is a beautiful calcium story. The giant pandas that we studied in China are very interesting because they, um, they live in two habitats. In the winter, they live in one habitat, and then they migrate up the mountain in the summer, and nobody really understood why this was. And so um, we did a study on this, and what we found is that they really need both habitats to balance their diet. In the winter habitat, the, um, the, the nitrogen, the protein availability is very low. Um, and of course, to reproduce, animals need both protein and calcium and other things. Um, and in the summer environment, protein is high, but calcium is very low. Mm -hmm. So what we were able to show using nutritional geometry, our multidimensional approach, is that these giant pandas, they migrate to the summer feeding habitat where they actually live off, protein, off uh, calcium. They must be living off calcium withdrawn from their bones. So there's little wow. stores of calcium. There isn't enough in the food. They have to return back to the, um, to the, uh, the winter habitat in order to get enough of it. Wow. Okay, so we have these appetites not only to tell us when to eat and what to eat, but we also, but also when to stop. Um, quite a few of us have a problem with stopping eating. Mm. So what do we eat that tells us to stop? Two principal breaks on the appetite are the protein content. Once you've eaten enough protein, then you tend to be satiated, stop eating. And the other is fibre. Fibre fills you up and it also provides other satiety signals that likewise provide a break on, on the appetite. Those are the two very strong stop signals in our diets. And the challenge is when you, when you eat a meal, the 
the question is how how do you know when you've eaten enough? And if you don't know when you've eaten enough, then you've got a problem because you can overconsume calories and end up with the problems that arise. So the signals that we've evolved, our, our body has evolved to know when to stop eating um, are some of them very short-term signals and some of them take longer before they come into action. And the shortest short-term signal comes from distension of the stomach and, and that is largely provided by bulk fibre in the food. So we've come to expect to have our tummies stretched when we, when we eat. And if that isn't there, and instead you're being, your tummy's being distended by naked calories, then you're going to stop eating way too late in relation to the amount of calories that you've eaten. Mm -hmm. And the signals that kick in subsequently as nutrients become digested and released into the body and are detected by the signaling systems that exist in your gut lining, in your liver, in your circulation, in your brain, those things take longer to kick in. And if you waited for them before you stopped eating, you will have way overeaten. And that's why taking fibre out of the diet has proven to be such a terrible problem. Mm, and contemporary Western diets are pretty low in fibre. Right, right. Okay, let's get back to the animals. Um, we talked about your locust experiments and there are, are many others detailed in the book and it's a shame we do have to leap over quite a lot in this podcast series, but leap we must. So for a while you looked at herbivorous and omnivorous scavenger um, creatures, but you hadn't yet looked at predators. Why was it important that you do look at predators? Predators were a serious challenge for, or some considered them to be a serious challenge for what we had been finding in relation to diet balancing by animals. Uh, when we had demonstrated that herbivores, um, such as locusts and omnivores, such as cockroaches and others that we had studied, did have these separate appetites that meticulously helped them to balance their own diet. Um, there was still a belief out there that the energy hypothesis was still right, but specifically for predators. And the logic underlying that argument was that unlike herbivores and omnivores, predators were believed to feed on foods that were, were perfectly balanced with respect to the nutrient requirements, um, their, their nutrient requirements. Just you are what you eat, kind of um, mm. idea. And secondly, that the composition, the body compositions of prey, was very similar. So, unlike a cockroach or a locust, which would encounter a lot of variability in its food environment and need mechanisms to balance its diet, the belief was that predators were the food to pay. So, we figured um, again using Darwinian theory, we predicted that this would be wrong actually predators like herbivores and omnivores would also need to balance their diets. Um, and so we tested this. And so you, the first predators you tested were spiders, is that correct? Yep. Tell me about what happened. You, you had several different kinds of predator spiders. You caught their prey in different ways, didn't you? 
we had a beetle, so this is work done with a young, uh, then young biologist, yep. David Mines, um, <laughs> in our lab at Oxford. Um, lovely set of experiments. Uh, we had a beetle and we had uh, two uh, species of spiders. And the reason that we chose those predators is they represented a range of foraging modes. So the beetle was a, a wandering predator. What it did is it moved around its environment in the wild and it selected what it wanted to eat and it preyed upon it. The um, one species of spider was um, a, a sit-and-wait predator, um, but it was different to the beetle in the sense that what it would do is it would move around its environment and select an ambush location and sit and wait for a prey to come to it and then it would... And is this the wolf spider? And it was the yeah. wolf spider and then the other was a web-building spider that had a totally different ecology altogether. What they do is they select a place to build a web and that's where they stay. So any food they have the opportunity to eat is food that comes to them. They, and they don't get the chance to choose what gets stuck in their web. They don't get the chance to choose what gets stuck in the web. So what we wanted to do is firstly span a range of different ecologies to test our hypothesis in predators and secondly see whether the mechanisms that are used to balance their diet if they did this differ between those different foraging modes. And what did you discover? Well, we discovered that they could all balance their diet precisely, and they did respond to having been pre-treated for a period on a, a food that was either too high in fat and low in protein or vice versa, and they would make an adjustment if you gave them the opportunity. But the way they made the adjustment was very different. So a beetle could choose between food items and it would um, choose the, the food item that contained the body composition that met its, its current needs. Um, the hunting spider would eat different amounts of different foods of different compositions. So things that came by and it grabbed, if it um, was something that met its needs, it would eat more of it than something that didn't. But the most extraordinary of all was the web-building spider. And what we found there was that the web-building spider would adjust the composition of the cocktail of digestive enzymes it injected into the prey such that it boosted the level of enzyme that it needed to dissolve the bit of the prey that contained the nutrient it required. Amazing. And did anybody know about this before? No, no, this was a big deal. This came, it was a paper that came out in the journal Science and um, created a bit of a storm because, as David said, it completely overturned the notion that, that predators just don't care, they're, they're, they're eating whatever they can get and maximising their energy intake. They really did care and they cared in, in rather specific and ways. And really intricate ways of making right. sure. Right? Amazing. So what was known is that the web-building spider injected digestive enzymes into the prey. What wasn't known is that it adjusted the way that it injected, which enzymes it injected, depending on which nutrient it needed at that particular time. This is one of the things that this book has given me so much more love for scientists. And, you know, I mean, I already did love scientists, but the kind of intricacy and the um, really meticulous work is just astounding. Okay, let's move on to um, 
something you observed, David, about dogs and cats in at a research station in Borneo while you were there to actually study orangutans. Well, let's backtrack a little bit, Charlotte. So, um, following on from the uh, spider work, mm -hmm. uh, we thought, well, you know, most people or some people consider um, invertebrates not to be real predators, they're just insects and spiders. So, uh, what we next had to do was see whether the same was true for vertebrate predators. Now, uh, you can imagine the challenges of doing this kind of work on a lion or a tiger <laughs> or a leopard um, or a wolf. So uh, we didn't choose those. But luckily, there are um, vertebrate predators that are safe to do that kind of work on. And then many of our houses, most of the time, dogs and cats. So we got an opportunity to do similar experiments on dogs and cats. And um, what we found is they too... Um, have separate appetites for different nutrients and use these to balance their nutrient intake. That was the first finding. So it extended what we had found in all other animals, including invertebrate predators, not invertebrate predators. The second thing we found is that when given the opportunity, they actually selected very different diets the cats did from the dogs. So the cats selected a diet that was about 50% of protein, of energy coming from protein, which is what wild predators select very similar to wolves in the wild or feral cats. Um, the dog selected a diet that was much lower in protein. It was between 25 and 30% protein. So it kind of overlaps with the higher end of the human diet um, and the diet that you would expect of an omnivore. And this was an interesting thing. Why is it that dogs that have evolved from wolves, basically been domesticated from wolves, would select an omnivore diet? Whereas cats that evolved from wild cats would continue to select the ancestral carnivore-type diet. Um, and we had ideas about that. And I observed firsthand something that really, I think, helps to explain this on a trip to Borneo on a research trip with my collaborator, Erin Vogel, um, to study uh, orangutans that we'll speak about later in the podcast series. And what I observed in Borneo is at the um, research station, Turnan Research Station, um, there were dogs and there were cats. They weren't pets. They were really working animals. Um, the job of the dog was the dogs were to, to warn the community at the um, research station of leopards approaching animals. Um, and the, do the job of the cats was to, to hunt um, mice and pests, the food stores. And what I observed was that neither were um, the, the cats weren't fed at all. Um, the cats were uh, left to uh, fend for themselves, which of course was important for the job they were expected to do. Hunger is a great um, motivator for catching mice. Um, but the dogs were fed, and what the dogs were fed was table scraps. There were no proprietary dog foods, no room for that at the research station. They were fed table scraps. And this probably explains one of the reasons, it probably explains why it is that dogs have evolved this capacity to um, opt to live off a diet that has lower protein, more similar to a human diet than what cats have, because during domestication, they have been um, adapted to feeding off human table scraps, whereas cats during domestication, they've continued, as they do today, many of them, they've continued to hunt and fend for themselves, as do predators in the wild. Mm. So it was a nice neat um, availability of these two in action at that research station. Okay, so by now your research was showing that balancing nutrients was really widespread throughout the animal kingdom, insects, invertebrates, but there was one animal you had not yet studied, and that was the human animal. 
So tell us about your um, captive human experiment in the Swiss Alps. Why did you need to do this experiment? Well, it, it was, as you said, Charlotte, it was the big unanswered question. How? Because we're, a, we're a, an animal. Um, we could extrapolate from everything else that we'd done to us, but we needed to test that. And we needed the opportunity to test that. And doing it in humans is not easy. And we were very fortunate um, in that we had a, an honours student at Oxford um, came, knocked on my door in the University Museum of Natural History at Oxford and said, she wanted to do um, a research project for her honours thesis, but it had to be on humans. And that was an unusual request for us because we were in a zoology department and you would normally expect somebody to want to do something on a badger or a, a grasshopper. Um, and so we, we said, well, actually, we have got an experiment um, we'd love to do on humans. Have you got any thoughts as to how we might do that? And luckily, she had family um, and friends and access to a chalet in the Swiss Alps. And so we designed a very simple version of our original locust experiment to carry out on, on human subjects. And so how many people did you have there and for how long? Well, we had 10 subjects yeah. in total and they went up to the, the chalet in the Alps and they were provided with... Um, three two-day experimental um, treatments. And because this was an isolated chalet, you could keep people in the place without them feeling that they were in jail and um, or under lockdown. We're all used to that now, but in those days it was less, <laughs> it was less normal. Um, and it was far enough away from um, some of the other inducements to to break the rules like you know a bar or a, or a supermarket and because humans are dreadful things when it comes to doing these experiments we we sort of cheat and lie and, and to ourselves as much as to the experimenter so they um they were kept for these three two-day consecutive two-day periods um on the first day they had a buffet of food or the first two-day period they had a buffet of food items they could eat breakfast, lunch, dinner, they had snacks, and they could choose whatever they wanted. And I, I noticed you ruled out um, chocolate and caffeine and alcohol. Yeah. That, seems very mean of you, especially <laughs> in the Swiss Alps. We're purists. Yeah, that's right. That, that, was, that was the only um, privation that I think they suffered. And Anyway, they, they, they nonetheless signed up. And um, during the first two days, we allowed them to pick what they wanted and... and um, at the end of every meal, what they ate was was weighed and measured so we could get an estimate as we had with our locusts and their little food dishes of what people actually ate. And then for the second two-day period, half of the subjects went on to a selection of foods which were lower in protein and higher in fat and carbs, um, and the other half were given choices of foods on their buffets, which um, were the other way around. And then... For the final two days, they were put back into a free choice where they could choose anything they like. And so the idea was to see whether during the first free choice period and the last free choice period, whether they were selecting a particular balance of 
protein, fat, and carbs, and whether the second free choice was influenced by the no-choice period in the middle, and what they did in that no-choice period in the middle, um, whether they responded to the protein change as a locus had. And what did you discover in the end of this experiment? They behave very similarly to locusts. So essentially what happened was if you gave them free choice, they would select a diet which contained it was about 18% of protein as total calories. The rest is fat and carbs, which is what you might expect or close to it. Um, during the period where they were confined to either a low-protein or a high-protein diet, then they ate the same amount of protein in both groups but very different amounts of calories to do that. So on the high-protein, low-fat and carb treatments, they ended up eating fewer calories to get to that amount of protein. On the low-protein, high-carb and fat treatment, they substantially overate calories, 30 or 35% more calories were, were consumed, but the same amount of protein. Mm. And so was this a surprise to you? Was this what you had hypothesised would happen? What was your feelings on the result? In our hearts of hearts, we thought that this could well be what happened. Um, we were really surprised at how clearly it came yeah. out in such a small experiment. You know, on the scale of human diet experiments, that was a pilot experiment, <laughs> a test experiment, and the clarity of the results was really astounding to me at least. Yeah, and to both of us. And... Yeah. and it, <laughs> It, it really, at the time, we then had to try and publish this pilot mm. study in, the, in the, the human literature. And with some help and guidance from specialist human nutritionists, we managed to do that. And, but it was, it was a bit of a challenge. And it gave rise to um, another paper, which was much more difficult, but has been foundational. Mm, okay, I want to come back to that, getting those things published, because that's interesting. But so all of this led to what's called the protein leverage hypothesis. And this has been huge for your research ever since, right? So can you give us a kind of nutshell description of what the protein leverage hypothesis is? So protein leverage is the phenomenon that we've described both from the small pilot human experiment and from the locust experiment and from other species that we've studied with, where the strong appetite for protein leverages the intake of fats and carbohydrates and therefore of energy. So if you have a diet that is low in protein relative to fats and carbohydrates, what that means is you will overeat fats and carbohydrates to hit your protein target. If you have a diet that is high relative to your balanced diet in protein versus fats and carbohydrates, you will under-eat fats and carbohydrates. That is a protein leverage, where protein is leveraging the intake of the other nutrients. The protein leverage hypothesis takes protein leverage and makes a hypothesis about its role in driving obesity in real human populations out there. And so this was really um, sort of groundbreaking, isn't it, about the implications of that for human nutrition and obesity? Yes. Uh, to see how ground, 
breaking it is, just think about a moment about what I've just said. What that proposes is that the reason that we overeat fats and carbohydrates is not because we have particularly strong appetites for those nutrients, but because we have a particularly strong appetite for the third macronutrient, and that is protein. And why it was so revolutionary um, comes from an observation which, again, if we think about this, if you, if you look at the evolution of the obesity crisis, so-called obesity epidemic, over the last 50 or 60 years, the, uh, if you estimate how much protein, carbohydrate and fat populations have eaten, and there are ways of doing that from um, available data sets, it seems that, well, protein intake in terms of um, the amount of protein human populations have eaten over those decades has remained incredibly consistent across populations across the world. Fat and carbohydrate intake, however, has gone up and that is the source of excess calories that's driven the, pro the, the obesity epidemic. So people quite reasonably were saying, well, it can't be protein. It's contributed zero of the extra calories that have driven the, the, the obesity crisis. It must be fat or carbohydrates. And so then there's been this 50-year battle amongst those who believe it's principally the, the fault of carbohydrates especially sugar, and those who believe it's principally the fault of fat, animal fats particularly. And this battle has been going on for years, and we came along and said, actually, everybody, it's neither fat or carbohydrate, it's the combination relative to protein, and protein appetite is driving everything. And that was profoundly discombobulating. Yes, and so you, I mean... It was not welcomed by everybody, this finding. And a, a human nutrition scientist later admitted to you that he had actually tried to stall the publication of some of your research because he was embarrassed <laughs> about this crucial discovery being made by two insect biologists. Yeah, that was, a, that was such a, a lovely occasion, actually. We did. We, we submitted this paper, and it was called um, obesity, the protein leverage hypothesis. We submitted it for publication, and as what as, as normally happens, it goes off to the journal, it goes off to the editors, the editors send it out for review. You normally wait, you know, a month or two, and you get the comments back, and it's either rejected or else they make suggestions for improvement, and that's the peer review process. Well, we sent it off and heard nothing for months and months, and and. We kept badgering the editor, you know, what's happening, what's happening? And eventually um, we, we got a response and there were, there were some actually rather minor comments in the end and it was published largely as we'd submitted it and, and that was great. But it took ages. And then in, I think it was in 2005 I was speaking um, to a human nutrition group at the University of Cambridge and there was a reception afterwards for, for, you know, for me after having given this talk. And a very senior colleague um, in the field um, admitted afterwards. He said, well, I, I just want you to know that I sat on that manuscript for many months um, and I now 
think that you're probably right, but at the time um, it was very hard to accept that the entire field of nutrition, human nutrition science, had missed this and that it took a couple of entomologists to point it out to us. And please understand how difficult that was. And that is the hallmark of an excellent scientist, somebody who has honesty, integrity and flexibility. And can own up. Eventually, eventually. I mean, I was actually quite shocked by that when I read that because I thought scientists are not scientists completely governed by evidence and, you know, this thing was very convincing that he was looking at. Oh, goodness me. Um, You understand the, the nature of the critic um, and we, we scientists live with anonymous criticism mm-hmm. habitually. That's that's the peer review. The anonymous peer review process is other people reading quite regularly, misunderstanding or 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 um, at, at least disputing what you've said and interpreting your data differently and and challenging you anonymously and sometimes that can be pretty tough and we live with anonymous criticism of our papers and our grant applications all the time. I mean interestingly that I mean that showed me that that criticism also carries with it the freight of this human um, you know psychology and emotions and um, I mean clearly in the end science prevailed but it's not always a bad thing. Um, what we're looking at is a little bit of advocacy, and a little bit of ad- advocacy in science is a good thing because or else what you would do is you would surrender your hypotheses with very low level of evidence. So what you need to you have a bit of faith in your hypotheses, but when the evidence accumulates, sufficient evidence accumulates, as happened with our colleague who reviewed the paper, and that's the time to change your mind. So a bit of advocacy gives um, momentum to hypotheses, but too much advocacy um, is no longer science. You can become trapped with your hypothesis. Mm. And and you just, again, the sociological aspect of this is really profound. People have dedicated entire careers to single ideas. And and there is a point at which the transition from um, collecting more evidence to support your hypothesis and giving up your hypothesis because it's been disproven is a really, really hard one. That's a tricky mm-hmm. transition in mm-hmm. any scientific career. The message, I think, is as a scientist, never get too attached to anything yeah. except the principle of evidence and truth. Yeah. If any one particular idea becomes too important to you, you've got to think very carefully about how well you do in science. Okay, look, I think that's an excellent spot at which we can wind up episode two. Very fascinating. Uh, Remember, for people listening, if you can't wait for episode three right now, you can um, go and buy the book immediately. It's published by HarperCollins. It's called Eat Like the Animals. And there will be details on our podcast page where you can also find other details about Professor David Robenheimer, Professor Steve Simpson, the Charles Perkins Centre and me, Fiction Night, Charlotte